0: Today's episode of No-Till Flowers is brought to you by Farmer's Friend. It's no secret that almost everything grows better in a tunnel. Bring the benefits of greenhouse production to your veggie or flower farm in an affordable and easy-to-assemble package from Farmer's Friend Caterpillar Tunnel Kits. They're quick to build and move, come in a variety of styles and sizes, and include everything you need to make installation a breeze. Can attest to this, I own two of these tunnels myself, and they are super easy to put up and take down as needed, plus... If you order two or more tunnels of any size, you'll get free shipping on your entire order. Also, be sure to check out Farmer's Friend's growing selection of small farm tools and supplies like the pyro weeder, silage tarps, landscape fabric, row covers, shade cloth, irrigation kits, and more. If you are ready to increase efficiency on your farm and earn higher profits with less work, visit FarmersFriend.com today. Today's show is also brought to you by Growing for Market Magazine.
1: Want to know the top 10 most profitable flowers to grow on a limited acreage? How to manage a greenhouse for cut flowers or how to structure a profitable farm business? Learn all of that and more by subscribing to Growing for Market magazine. Founded by the flower farmer author, Lynn Bazinski, Growing for Market is celebrating 30 years of helping local food and flower growers succeed with articles written by industry leaders like Elliot Coleman, Aaron Benzikane, and Jean-Martin Fortier, by farmers, for farmers. Plus, subscriptions start at only $30 per year. Whether you do farmer's markets, local wholesaling, a CSA, or dream of starting a farm, check them out today at growingformarket.com. Request a free sample print or digital copy from the website, and podcast listeners can get a new subscriber discount of 25% off when using the code SOIL when subscribing at growingformarket.com. Again, that code is SOIL. And I wanna throw in just a personal off script plug here to say how much I value my own subscription to Growing for Market. Editor Andrew and his team put together a fantastic collection of articles for each issue. There's always flower related content, but to be honest, I find the stories about employee management and small farm equipment and so many other topics just as valuable. So that's a big two thumbs up for me here. Put in your earbuds, pour a cup of tea, or put on your work gloves. It's time for another episode of the No Till Flowers Podcast. As always, I'm your nerdy host, Jenny Love of Love and Fresh Flowers. I created this podcast to drill into the details of truly natural farming, be it no till or biostimulants or whatever, as it relates to flower farming. I felt like there was a void in the industry for this kind of information. And since I'm in my third season of No-Till here on my farm, and I still have lots of questions, I thought this podcast would be a great way for me to ask those questions and hopefully get some good answers from our guests. So let's get started. All right, Dahlia lovers, get excited because today's show is all about Dahlia production. I have with me Leanne Huber of Cozy Town Flowers in South Central Pennsylvania, and this woman is an absolute wealth of knowledge. I've been growing for longer than she has, but she's been very focused on dahlias, so she knows so much, and she shares so generously in this episode. She began growing in 2015, like we all do, with lots and lots of crops But then the reality of trying to farm while raising very small children set in. So she decided to do what I think is a very smart thing. And she focused on one crop and that one crop was dahlias. So Today, we just get really nerdy and really really detailed about all the things I'm sure you want to know about, which include like how to start a new dahlia patch, what kind of site do you need to pick, balancing the soil for dahlias, what kind of uh, attributes are you looking for when it comes to good dahlias for cutting, because we all know there are thousands of varieties of dahlias out there, but not all of them make good cuts. So Leanne has this great scoring system that she helps us um, understand what would make a good cut flower in the dahlia world. She also goes into detail about how she stores tubers. After failing for several seasons, she now has it dialed in. I talk about my system for no-dig dahlias and how that works into my no-till system here at my farm. Uh, Leanne is really generous with talking about nutrient deficiencies, and we both talk about how we use foliar feeding um, as a way to keep our plants healthy. And I even ask her that age-old question, does size matter? So we've got lots and lots to discuss today. And bonus, there is going to be a short extra episode this week, which is just me and Leanne talking about pest control in dahlias. Yes, pest control. Always the biggest headache for any dahlia grower. So make sure you come back and tune in for that later this week. And also, while I have your attention, make sure you're following No-Till Flowers on Instagram. Again, that's at No-Till Flowers on Instagram. And on there, I really want to hear what you guys think of these episodes. Go there to share your thoughts. Um, send me new ideas for the show and so forth. So make sure if you're not already following on Instagram, please do do and I love to hear your feedback, especially about dahlias because there's so much in this episode. So let's get started. the podcast I'm very excited to talk to Leanne Huber from Cozy Town Flowers. Um, We're going to get really really nerdy about dahlias today. We both have this passion for dahlias and let's face it every freaking flower farmer out there has a passion for dahlias. (laughs) So (laughs) It seems like a really good topic to drill into for this episode. So welcome Leanne. I'm excited to um, get really nerdy with you.
2: I am very excited. Um, I think people who have passions can be like good or bad. So we'll we'll have to like sort that out for them.
1: (laughs) (laughs) See where it goes. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we'll definitely make people believers in dahlias and all the beauty that they have to offer, which is not a hard sell, to be fair. So, um, But first, let's start with you giving us a little bit of a background about how you came to be such a dahlia aficionado and what Cozy Town Flowers is all about, where you're located, the size of the space that you're growing on, and do you grow other things besides dahlias? So lay it on me.
2: Oh, wow. Where do I start? So I think I'll start at the beginning with the one dahlia that started it all. And I, I know I can't even tell you what it was. I mean, it was just purchased at Lowe's. I purchased my home with the land and late in the season, I bought one on clearance and it just happened to bloom just before frost. So I only got to see it bloom once, but that's all it took. And so from one plant that winter, I decided to find more information about it, which led to 30 purchases the next season, <laughs> followed by 150 the next season. So if you're listening, this is a very addictive type of plant and um, I'm here to encourage that. (laughs) (laughs) I I officially started Cozy Town Flowers in 2015 and I come from generations of farmers but not any floriculturists so this was a new crop but I started the flower business with hopes like I think many to just grow cut flowers that are unique for your local area and sell to florists and wholesalers and That's exactly how I started it. And I loaded my van and I went to Florist and also had a baby, and quickly realized that maybe I couldn't handle all of that at the same time. And uh, I started the business with my sister, Kate Stoner, and about two years into the process, decided I needed to take a step back and and really focus on being a mother to two very young children. So, Kate took the dahlia business and the cut flower business and she created cold water flowers. And we still work together, even though we live 15 minutes apart and we have the same business, the market's big enough for both of us. Nice. So, she, she, yeah, she continued on with it. And I took some time to soul search and realize that. I call it the uh, time of reconciliation because I really had to figure out um, how I was going to do this mom thing and a business thing because I wanted to do both. Um, But here I was in a brand new environment, but everything else was different. you know, like I was still trying to do the same things, but in a different environment. And as you know, with plants, that sometimes doesn't work. I wasn't getting the fruit that I wanted out of it. Yeah. So during that time is I if I wasn't going to be selling, I was going to do all the fun things I wanted to do, but never had time for, because I was trying to meet a customer needs. And I started growing dahlias from seed and that started up my dahlia breeding program. And now in 2020, just so happened to be the year I decided to go full steam back into the flower business. Uh, (laughs) What a (laughs) year to pick. (laughs) It was a year of growth though, because you know, all I needed was the space, which I had. And I had never stopped growing dahlias. I just stopped the local sales because that's the most time consuming yeah. part. Yeah. And uh, just built up and propagated. And I didn't have to go anywhere for that, nor did I have to wear a mask. So I had a great year.
1: <laughs> nice. I love it. And do you grow any other flowers now, or you just gave all that to Kate and you just focus entirely on dahlias?
2: I just focus on dahlias right now because it fits into my long-range plan, and it also allows me to be the mom that I want during the summertime.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's got to be so hard. I don't have young children, but I can only imagine what that's like, and I always look at any flower farmer or any farmer in general who's got young kids in tow, and I'm just, in in all of you all, I, I it's so hard to juggle everything that I've got going on to throw in little life forms that are so... Um, malleable and exciting and, and time consuming and attention needed, you know, that I I don't know how you do it. Frankly, that's all I can say.
2: Well, (laughs) Yeah, it was all about boundaries that I had to place on myself because I didn't want to lose my sanity during this process. And I didn't want to hate doing something that I originally loved to do. Um, And ultimately what I decided it was to cut out all local sales. And it seems like a very radical step if I'm trying to do a flower business. But with dahlias, the thing I had was time and dahlias need time, especially if you're breeding them for a specific purpose. It takes years to bring something to market. And I also had time when they were in school now that they are. Um, And that's really when I'm busiest because it's planting in the spring and harvesting in the fall. Uh, and I could do all of my commerce online.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's really true, and so then with everything just being a web sale and needing to just ship stuff, um, that's not nearly as cumbersome and and uh, sort of like crisis mode as trying to move fresh-cut flowers every week throughout the season.
2: Yep, it's just a business plan that fell into place during the two years that I took off when I realized I could really make a go at this, but I had to cut out the other things and it was just a process of pruning and I'm in a really comfortable spot because of that now. It hurt at first but it's good now.
1: I like that you're that you have this example though to put out into the world of jumping in feet first into flower farming with all the enthusiasm and buying all the seeds and all the all the different plants. I'm sure you did exactly what we all do at the beginning and just have like 500 things that you're trying to grow and and trying to sell like i don't know exactly where everywhere you tried to sell but you know like farmers markets csa weddings florists wholesale you know all those things and and i see a lot of newer growers doing that where they try to do grow all the things and sell all the things and then just get burned out or don't really do a good job at any of them, frankly, most of the time. So. And
2: that's so true. I felt that's the way I felt like I wasn't doing well at anything and it wasn't the environment I wanted to work in. So, yeah, I, I had to reconcile all that and decide what was going to be my future moving forward. And I required the space in order to work through that. Like, I don't think I could have worked through that while still trying to do all the things. So.
1: Yeah, and you probably learned some really valuable lessons along the way of trying to do all the things that let you make wiser choices once it was time to edit.
2: Absolutely. So I really niche down five years later. I mean, I grow here in Pennsylvania. I'm on the state line of Maryland and Pennsylvania in a zone 6B, uh, so very similar to you. And uh, yeah, I'm just doing dahlias now, and it's really fantastic.
1: That's amazing. So how much space, or maybe it's better in Dahlia land, to ask how many tubers do you grow? <laughs> What's, what are your numbers? How, how can we uh, quantify your operation?
2: My full capacity will be around 2,000 tubers, which honestly is just the maximum that one person, meaning me with a little bit of help during heavy times, uh, can manage and process. Um, so like that's my limiting capacity, because I don't use large equipment to harvest or to plan it's all done by hand. And it's all done on a 6500 square foot plot of land.
1: Wow, wow. And is that the same plot that you started on in the very beginning, or did you end up shifting your growing space as well when you moved to dahlias?
2: I've done everything from raised beds to out in the field. And the field is basically an acre spot in our backyard that I've tilled up. So it's no longer play space, but it's my play space.
1: Yeah, (laughs) I like it. (laughs) So that leads me to my next question is about um, site preparation for a new patch of dahlias. Because I'm sure there's lots of new um, listeners to this podcast that are either maybe brand new to farming or maybe they're vegetable growers who are now thinking about adding um, flowers to the mix because they're so great for bringing in pollinators and diversifying the soil life. So let's talk about if you were starting from scratch, given everything that you know now, what would you recommend for prepping a new site for dahlias?
2: Well, the good news is, is that I think dahlias love virgin land. And the field that I purchased was actually old um, pasture hayfields. Um, and so it had been in production before, but it had been a decade or more before anything was done to it. Uh, so, I, that first year, honestly, I went through, I tilled because that's what everyone does to get sawed up. And uh, I planted and I had a great year. But what I quickly found out is that um, dahlias need a lot more care than just a plant and walk away. They are very hungry plants. Yeah. Um, they really need a lot of nutrients beyond nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus. And getting a soil test was probably the best thing I ever did to really dial in to see what dyas um needed. Because sometimes in some circles you'll hear that they're called divas for a reason. Um, they, they
1: are. <laughs> they
2: are like they require a lot, but at the same time they can be so easy when you have the right ingredients in place.
1: Yeah, I agree. They're they're kind of a real um, puzzle to figure out initially. But once you kind of get it dialed in, I feel like at least at my farm, dahlias are the most productive uh, crop that I have. So it's just a matter of figuring out the formula. And then once you get going, it's not hard. But those first season or two is pretty rough. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. So so they need full sun and good drainage. And then what pH are you aiming for in your field? I aim for about 6.5 here in mine. Six
2: five to six eight seems to be a nice sweet spot for dahlias. I mean it's yeah. the it's like the spot where you're gonna get all those favorable microbial activities happening. And what they're gonna do is they're gonna turn all the available nutrients in the soil and make them available to the plant. So making sure your water's at the pH, making sure your soil's at the pH. And it takes time, gentle nudges to get your soil where you need to. So I would caution anyone who does a soil test and say, oh, I'm going to just do this and put lime on and it's going to be perfect. It's going to take a little bit of time to get the chemistry of your soil where you need it.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think too, too often on my own accord here at my farm, I... When I was a newer girl, I was trying to just dump a bunch of stuff in. I thought more is better, more is better, and then it really wasn't. So um, small, gentle process is absolutely right. So what kind of, did you have to add minerals or anything when you first opened up your patch, or have you gone on to add different minerals and amendments?
2: I have, and I do the amendments in the fall, so they take time for to be incorporated into the soil so they're different than fertilizers you know you can do fertilizers in the spring because that's what the plant's going to immediately feed on Um, but just this past week I added gypsum to my soil and that's calcium and sulfur which are two nutrients I needed in my soil anyway and I have a clay component to my soil and that's going to help aerate the soil a little bit better too I am sitting right on the edge of six and a half of, for the pH. And so I added a, a just a little bit of lime to help keep it where it needs to be. And that's basically all I did. Um, one of the most surprising factors when I started growing dahlias is that um, you can actually have too much organic mer- material in your soil.
1: Oh, do you uh, tell me. I don't know this. I, this is new. Tell me all it's about it. Like,
2: Well, I mean, like if you were to just to get 100% compost and dump it in a pile and grow from it, I mean, pumpkins will do really great, but
1: yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a one note show, you know, and there's yeah. a lot to go on. And um, I was just about to haul in and dump a ton of compost from a neighboring farm when I got my soil test back and it actually told me that my organic material was in a really great spot.
1: Nice. So what percentage were you aiming for? What, what, what makes you feel like it's good?
2: I'll tell you the truth. I couldn't see it. So if I were to dig up and say, oh, you know, it doesn't look like there's not a lot of organic material. It was only the test and I'd have to go back onto the test. I'd have to see, but yeah, it's, it's, it was just one of the most alarming things where I thought that I just needed more, 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 like we just talked about, but it was the actual results of it. Test that told me, no, you're doing really good. And so it kind of changed a little bit of my fall plan and I just had to do the mineral amendments. Um, but the other more important factor for site prep for a dahlia patch is
1: water availability. Mm, yes, they are heavy drinkers, heavy eaters and heavy drinkers.
2: <laughs> they are. They usually when I go on to another farm or someone sends me a picture and says, what's wrong with my dahlias? It's a uh, nine times out of 10, you need to water it more. Mm
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I didn't realize that when I was a new grower either. I was severely underwatering my dahlias and they were very stunty. And then I, for whatever reason, decided to start watering them more and they became giant after that.
2: They are water loving plants and water is very important for nutrient uptake. So you could have all of the nutrients there, but if there isn't enough water in the ground to help them take it up, then they can't feed.
1: Yeah, yeah. So what do you, um, in your experience, have you found to be some of the nutrients that are most important to healthy dahlias? And I know it's all dependent on what's available in the native soil where you are and um, climate and a lot of other things. But generally speaking, what do you think are some of the more important nutrients to think about when you're growing dahlias?
2: I have found that dahlias do love nitrogen. I think in some circles, you might read about how not to add nitrogen to dahlias when you plant them. That might be a little outdated or it might be in certain situations where maybe they're just doing a few plants, but if you're a production agricultural cut flower operation or even in your own garden and you want a lot of blooms. You do want to make sure you have enough nitrogen uh, for available for your plants so your NPK making sure they're in the right balance um, is. A good place to start, but dahlias also really require calcium, sulfur, and boron. If I'm going to have a deficiency, it's usually one of those three.
1: Nice. So I've noticed calcium being a big issue in my um, dahlia production here, and I started using last season um, Korean Natural Farming k and I started creating my own um, calcium-based fertilizer using eggshells and vinegar and applying that as a weekly, weekly application. So I, I don't know who taught me way back when about dahlia feeding, but to do it every week and to do it a week proportion, uh, you know, W-E-A-K yes, there you <laughs> amount. Go. Yeah, it sounds funny when I try to say it just over um, the air like this. But so every week to fertilize with a weak amount of um, Mineral or of nutrients. And so last season, I started foliar applying this um, KNF solution, which is water soluble calcium from eggshells. And I noticed such a difference in the strength of the stems that I was cutting. So the, the dahlias didn't necessarily get a lot more productive, but all of the stems were very. Um, solid. I noticed a better vase life or, you know, bucket life in my case where um, the stems just stayed nice and firm and we had fantastic results. Um, so has that been something you've seen in your field or anything really?
2: I, I find that if I'm having a micro macro nutrient deficiency that foliar feeding is the first thing I, I, I go to because it seems like you'll get, um, you'll see the results a lot sooner. Yeah. And with calcium, I've seen stunted growth of my plants like the the leaves will start to curl like the new growth Mm -hmm. and so it'll usually be the time after they have developed their first five or six leaf sets I pinched them back and they're just about to bloom and then all of a sudden you'll notice like you're not growing you're curling up a little bit Um, you're getting a little pale I wouldn't say yellow but they'll be pale yeah Um, that's a that's a first indicator for calcium deficiency. And then if you leave it like that, they'll just be stunted plants the entire season. Even if they do manage to bloom, the stems will be shorter. Um, They'll be weaker. They'll break off at the blossom point. Um, So yeah, it's just a simple mineral and it's one that you can apply, like you said, and you'll see a result in 10 or 14 days.
1: Yeah. It's so, it's amazing how quickly they respond to foliar feeding in particular. I feel that way about all my flowers at the farm. We do foliar feeding almost exclusively for um, fertilizing at this point, but the dahlias, it's, it's like you spray, I usually spray in the evening and let it, um, not, not at dark, but you know, I spray around five o'clock or six o'clock and then it it dries off by um, the time the sun sets. And then in the morning I come back in and it's like, (laughs) It's like a whole new field. It's like, wow, look at them. They're glowing. I swear they grew three inches overnight. Um, So it's really fantastic how they respond. It makes you feel like a really good grower when you do it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But tell me about boron. So I know that it's very important. It's one of those micronutrients that I feel like I did not give enough attention for many years and I've started to try and focus on it more. So tell me your experience with boron and what does that deficiency maybe look like in dahlias? Yeah.
2: I mean, I didn't, have any clue what boron in the soil was until I had a problem. And I think that's the most case for most people. But what was happening is I was noticing that the edges of the leaves of the dahlia were burning and darkening. Um, There was, and and this was on new growth again at that same stage. And I think it's with dahlias, you, if you start from a tuber, that tuber has all There's a lot of things in there. It has water, it has carbohydrates, but it also has minerals in it that they're going to need until they start producing their own feeder roots. And so this time period between their first few leaf sets and when they bloom, this is the time where they're making their own feeder roots into your soil and they're developing their own root structure to feed themselves. And they're not relying on that tuber nutrient anymore. Yeah. And this is when I see a lot of these nutrient deficiencies because it's not in the soil for them to take up. And so boron is another one. And I think some dahlias are more sensitive to these um, deficiencies than others because hmm. I grow a lot of varieties in my patch. Yeah. I don't I don't have rows of 100. Um, I might have 30 to 40 and then one of this one because I'm trying it out. Um, and so I will have a completely healthy looking plant next to a plant that's struggling. And so I have a theory that maybe some varieties are more sensitive than others. We'll see in a few years or a lifetime if I'm correct. Yeah. But I hope boron, you're tracking
1: that a little bit. We, hope, <laughs> Inquiring minds want to know.
2: <laughs> but the boron is one of those things where I'd have this row of healthy plants and all of a sudden this one specific variety was having an issue. And uh, I did some testing and it confirmed that it was boron. And it's a difficult one. Like if you just needed to add boron to something, it's hard. I did get a recommendation from a specialist that said you can use borax soap because that has boron in it. Um, But use it very sparingly because these micronutrients, like you can overdo it quickly and then the soil can't process it out. The plants don't need a lot of it. And then you can quickly have too much. Um, So basically using a salt shaker, (laughs) get it around and incorporate it in. Um, But if you can find a way to put boron in a foliar feeding, they'll respond quite quickly, just like calcium.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I've heard, I haven't used it, but for what it's worth, I think there's a product called solubore, which is uh, something you can use as a foliar feed as well. But again, obviously in very, very small amounts um, because boron is one of those things that can quickly turn ugly if you use too much of it. So yeah. 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 And then real quick, sulfur, talk to me about sulfur and how you've witnessed that in your patch in terms of deficiency.
2: I'm not an expert on this one yet. I think they go hand in hand with calcium. That's why I was very excited to amend with gypsum this fall, um, just because they're the two major components of gypsum. And it also is what my ground needed and what my plants needed. Not every plant needs to have you know, all of these minerals in the concentrations that they did. But since I'm really dialed into one specific crop, it did make it quite easy to you know, use this and put it in. Cause my goal is to not do foliar feeding every week. <laughs>
1: like, <laughs> I agree. It is a chore and you would like to have time in the summer to be with your kids and stuff. And that's one thing you've got to do.
2: I do. And I, uh, I mean, I know maybe other people have four wheelers with tanks and they can boom spray. No, I'm hucking a five gallon tank on my back. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> and it takes a long time. Uh so, yeah, so I'm trying to really get more soil tilled into my crop. And and if I have to hit them uh, a couple times in the season, that's fine. But no, my goal is not to do foliar feeding every yeah. week.
1: <laughs> I do. I have to say, I, I completely validate your statement that it's just such a time consuming and carrying a five gallon backpack spray around is really not very fun. But I do find it is the one time that I really look at my plants. So I've tried to like take it away from being like just a chore to feed the plants and think of it more as scouting. Um, you know, I looked at pest pressure, I look at deficiencies, I just kind of take a gauge of what I think, you know, are these gonna come into major flower this week or do I think it's gonna be two more weeks until they're really starting to go? And you know, later later in the season when they're in bloom, I think about it you know that's when I do my my sort of head count for each week and I think okay so next week we're probably going to have 30 bunches of blizzard or whatever and then I know you know that's what's mm-hmm. coming so I try to I try to multitask as all good women farmers and <laughs> others others of the world do so um, being, but what oh go ahead
2: you have to say being with your plants and being in tune with them is so important I mean I'd rather do it with coffee but you know teach your own. <laughs>
1: Each their own. Each their own. I totally, I would like to do it with coffee as well, but um, but I'm doing it in the evening, so probably not a good idea. Uh, but I wanted to say for those listening, and maybe it helps you too, Leanne, to know, I have a backpack sprayer that I love. Um, it's called, it's from uh, Four Sons. It's a battery-operated backpack sprayer. I can't give it enough of a thumbs up um, in general, and I learned about it from Mandy and Steve at Three Porch Farm, and I think it's it's the best backpack sprayer ever. So, so look that up um, for folks who need a backpack sprayer and getting a battery operated one just changes everything because <laughs> then you don't have to stupid hand pump the whole thing <laughs> yeah I mean I
2: love a good workout but that's yeah. I just took note of what you just said <laughs>
1: yeah yeah because the other thing like I went through all sorts of you know high quality backpack sprayers um for many seasons like solo and um I can't remember the other brand that I had, but all the, you know, all the major brands, but they all had the, the, the hand crank. And that was the component that broke every single time was that pumping action because it just got so much wear and tear when you're out there fully feeding thousands of square feet every week. Um, it just took too much of a beating. So now that I have a backpack sprayer, it's been, I think I've had it two seasons now and that thing just chugs right along because there's no, no, um, Moving part, you know, really to break. So big, big thumbs up. That that's
2: wonderful. Thanks for sharing that.
1: Yeah, yeah, of course. And thank you for all the tips on calcium, boron, and sulfur. So next up, I want to talk about um, choosing dahlias for good cut flowers because there are a million. Well, I'm probably exaggerating, but there are definitely it's thousands. Close. <laughs> thousands of varieties. They all are equally dreamy in photos. You know, when you see a photo of them, you just want to buy every single one that's there, but they're definitely not created equal in many, many ways, but they're, you know, choosing one for cut flowers is kind of tricky, especially based off of just a photo. So what tips do you have for making sure you're getting a variety that's good for cutting, and then also what are you looking for? What what are the attributes you consider um, valuable for cut production?
2: I think that this is such an important conversation because when I started flower farming, the first thing I looked for was what were good cut flower varieties, and there's like zero information out there about this. I'm coming from a production agricultural background where if I wanted to know, you know, what say cattle, for example, you know, which ones were good mothers, there is this organization that has metrics that they measure a breed by, and then you can go out there and find it. That doesn't exist for cut flowers for dahlias at this point. Um, So I spent a lot of money buying a lot of dahlias (laughs) and growing them and finding (laughs) which ones were good and which ones were not. Um, So The biggest tip I have now is that you have a world at your fingertips um, and a lot of farmers are on social media whether it be Facebook or Instagram. And I would just look to see what they're posting because people wanna post what they like. Um, And if you would agree with um, some of the thought processes that farmer goes through when deciding what to harvest and who their customer is, that's a really good place to start and it doesn't cost you anything.
1: Yeah, that's a really good tip. Look for people that are doing similar to what you want to do, and they may be growing the ones, you know, trial and error have discovered the ones that are a good fit.
2: Yeah, otherwise it's expensive to do it the way that I did it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Same, same here. I started my farm and I bought every freaking dahlia I could find, you know, I, I bought all mine from Swan Island in the beginning at retail. And, um, you know, I think I was growing at one point, like 70 varieties of dahlias. It was crazy, but like most of them weren't actually good cut (laughs) flowers.
2: Yeah, it's hard. And then even when you see something advertised as a cut flower, what does that even mean? Um, So for me, if you came to Cozy Town and I said, this is a good cut flower, I'm really talking a lot about plant attributes. Um, So these are going to be plants um, that produce harvestable stems in a good stem quality. And stem quality could mean that it's slender, but it's rigid. So it has a lot of strength. Um, You're not going to be harvesting um, bamboo stakes. (laughs) Some of them look like that. Uh, Also, the bloom quality and not necessarily the form or the color. But I I really despise what I call bobblehead dahlias, where they don't have a firm attachment to the stem and you can go and spend all the money on the dahlia tubers do all the work of planting spend all the money with fertility and pests and then the moment you harvest it and you put it in a bucket and the blossom falls off I mean
1: it just goes right off
2: (laughs) I mean did you hear the eye roll like it's terrible yes
1: yes like it's like you know popping the head off of a dandelion or whatever yeah so it's
2: That, I mean, that's an instant call. In my, I won't even sell dahlias that do that because I don't want to propagate them as any cut flower. Another thing is if the bloom shatters, or if it holds its petal, it has firm petals, it wants to stay even in more into the maturity of the plant. Um, and then tuber production, which is important, well, for me because I sell tubers, but also a farm wants to propagate them. These are an investment to begin with, but if you treat them right, right, you should get your money back the next year.
1: Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that bobblehead is the one that frustrates me the most of all the attributes of dahlias that seem so dreamy in (laughs) pictures. and then you get them and you just curse them left and right because you just lose them. I feel like cafes do that to me a lot, but once I started um, applying calcium more, that seemed to uh, help at least a little bit with that, but I used to have a lot of issues with cafes popping off.
2: Yeah, I would say if you had a plant, like you grew it one year and it was fine, and the next year it's not doing so hot, it's probably a nutrient issue and yeah, if you're having bobbleheads and it wasn't before, try calcium. <laughs>
1: great. Yeah, exactly. Time to take a quick break and get a word from one of our great sponsors that makes this podcast possible. Flowers are reaching a diverse and appreciative customer base today through farmers markets, CSAs, grocery stores, weddings, contactless delivery, and UPIC. This diversity is supported by the strong community of members in the Association of Specialty Cut Flower Growers. Since 1988, the association, better known as the ASCFG, has been uniting and educating specialty cut flower growers across the globe, supplying them with accurate and up-to-date information about best practices for both the production and marketing of cut flowers. The ASCFG publishes the only trade magazine in North America dedicated entirely to specialty cut flowers. It also produces a host of classes and conferences on topics ranging from floral design to irrigation. The connections made with growers through an ASCFG membership are priceless. My own flower business would not be where it is today without the generous mentorship of fellow ASCFG members. Visit ascfg.org to learn more about all the great benefits of becoming a member. Mention no-till flowers when joining and receive a $50 discount on a new membership. All right, let's get back to this great conversation and dig even deeper. So give us, if you don't mind, if you're willing to share your secrets, a list of five or 10 dahlias that you know already are good for cutting. Do you have a list by any chance? I
2: I do, and I would love to share because I want to save some people some problems. So there's a few dahlias that are, are very popular they might be expensive, but I'm going to tell you that they're worth it. Um, so they're going to have all the qualities I just talked about. And they're also going to be good tuber producers. Um, so you're going to get your money back. Okay. So Woo-hoo! those would be peaches and cream, which is super hot right now. Yeah, It's a wonderful plant. Um, another one is coral Uh, It can also be sold as Castle Drive sometimes, but the lee that has a dark stem uh, is fantastic. Again, great plant. A lot of these plants are also gonna be around the four to five foot range um, with an upright growth habit. So they're gonna have a nice structure. So you're not bending down completely to harvest, but they're not so tall, they're unmanageable. Mm -hmm. Another one would be Blighten Softer Gleam.
1: Ooh, I don't know that one. Oh.
2: (laughs) What's that look like? (laughs) It's a very soft, muted, um, it gets yellow in the fall, but it's more of an amber um, during the year. And this is a ball type dahlia. And okay, that's another yeah. thing we didn't talk about is the for- yeah. some forms can work better for cut flower production than others, just because the petals themselves might be more sturdy. So like a ball dahlia, yeah. it's just a nice firm bloom. Um, And anyway, so blizzard um, is not that expensive, but it's a very good white and it's just going to give you a ton of stems you're going to make money off of.
1: Yeah. Um, That's my, by the way, that is my number one dahlia variety here at my farm. The, it's just a, it's a crank it out kind of dahlia.
2: Yeah. If you were going to invest in any white, just buy that one and then experiment later on. Yeah. And then the other one would be the Cornell dahlia family. And so Dahlias can sport, which means they can change colors randomly. And if they're stable after this, they can be introduced as a new variety. So there's a variety called Cornell, which is a red bloom um, that sported into an orange or a bronze. And so that's called Cornell bronze. Um, another sport of this family is called Ivanetti, which is like a plum burgundy. And then there's Isabel, which is more of a purple lavender. And so these plants all have different colors, but they really came from the same plants, so they're going to have the same growth habit, they're going to be the same height, they're going to produce the same wonderful tubers that are easy storing, um, and if you're going to have a row, it'll be super uniform.
1: Yeah, I didn't know that about Ivanetti and Isabel being part of Cornell. That's that's new, that's exciting.
2: Some of these are sports of sports, so I'm not sure how the family tree breaks down there. Right,
1: but you're right, they all are, and now that you say that, I. Yes, they're very uniform plants now that you've said that. I just, I knew Cornell and Cornell bronze, but I didn't realize Ivanetti and Isabel were also part of that group. So that's fantastic.
2: I know this is the nerdy stuff we all live for, right?
1: (laughs) I was going to say, it's like you specializing is how we get this kind of fantastic information. I love that you've synthesized all of this together for us. So let's let's, um, tease apart that um, the classes or groups of dahlias for those listening who don't know what that's about. So... I'll, I'll let you do the full spiel, but um, there's ball, there's uh, water lily, um, decorative. So go, let's let's talk about that.
2: Yeah, I mean there, I think there might be, gosh, I'm going to say about 13 or 14, and these are just forms that the American Dahlia Society has classified. Dahlias are so unique and so diverse um, that they can really be any shape size or color other than green and blue. Um, So anyway, the forms that I talk about have been recognized from the American Dahlia Society. So there's everything from formal decorative to informal decorative, cactus blooms, um, water lilies, another one, the ball type I mentioned before, um, a little tiny ball, it's called a pom-pom. And basically it's about the shape of the petal and how it sits on the bloom itself and whether they're curled inward or outward and any combination of these. Um, Some forms do do better than others for cut flowers. So like closed centered dahlias, which could be your formal decoratives or your balls. They have a lot of petals and they're not going to open up immediately to be pollinated. Once they become pollinated, they're really going to lose a lot of vase life because the plant's done. Like it's reached its point of maturity and it's just going to set seed Um, so while other open center dahlias are beautiful they can still be used for cuts but you have to cut them a little sooner and just know they're not going to have the vase life of another closed center dahlia
1: those are all fantastic tips for what to look for too in general when um, considering the different forms you know i definitely swear by ball as pretty much the only the only non-ball value that I grow really is cafe, and then labyrinth is another one that I really like, so. And
2: the, in general, it's not always the case, but in general, the bigger the bloom, the fewer days of face life you'll have, and so I consider the big ones like cafe or um, labyrinth to be more event-type flowers, which is what you use them for, isn't that true? Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, Yeah, for me, it's been pretty easy that way, but with COVID, we had to switch to more retail um, contactless delivery. And I had to start reevaluating my dahlia selection based on that. So my cafe dahlias got very little um, use this past year, but I'm sure they'll go back into uh, major circulation.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I don't think they're going away for weddings.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But if you were selling at a farmer's market or something like that, um, I definitely would recommend the ball dahlias for those ones for sure. Um, So, but you're also, you're actually breeding your own dahlias, which I think is obviously a step beyond just growing dahlias for cutting. So let's talk about that and how exactly are you evaluating the ones you're breeding, um, in particular as it relates to cut flowers, which it sounds like pretty much that's the focus of Cozy Town at this point is cut flower or cut varieties of dahlias. Is that right?
2: That's absolutely right. You just can't take the farmer out of the girl.
1: (laughs) I production 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 baby.
2: <laughs> it is, and they're beautiful, and you know, yeah. just I mean, I just fell in love with them with so many different ways. But when I was trying to find cut flowers, I just recognized the void. And then when I had this time off that I mentioned earlier, um, I don't know. I, I was trying to find the information, and basically, what I discovered, I was trying to find me with the information already, and it didn't exist. So that's what I'm doing now. I'm aspiring to be who I was looking for and to breed dahlias that are just going to make profit for all of these individuals growing for a cut flower market and they don't have to go through the guesswork or the expense of trying to sort through the tens of thousands of varieties that are out there. Um, In the history of dahlias it seems like they've been really. Um, shoved in a corner for exhibition. And exhibition grown dahlias, they're really bred for their bloom and their perfection of bloom. And when you get so singular like that, you can lose another quality because of that. And I think that the plant for a dahlia has suffered. There are some great dahlias that we've just mentioned that are great for cutting, but I'm hoping to build upon that and make them more available. So everything from tuber production to the plant growth habit, to the quality of the stems, the strength of the blossom, um, they're the features that I'm looking for because if you can buy a tuber and the next year it produces seven more for you and they're easy to store, you know, that's the type of plant that I'm gonna want in my own field. So I hope to make it available for others.
1: Yeah. And you're doing also though, breeding through seed crossing. Is that right?
2: That's the way that you find new varieties. So (laughs) yeah, seeds are the sexual reproduction part of the plant. Um, And then the asexual propagation would be through cuttings or tubers because the tubers, the genetic material in the eyes is going to be the exact same copy for the plant that it came from.
1: Yeah. And most Cut flower farmers would not want to necessarily go down the path of using seed dahlias, correct? Because they, not it, there's a lot of variability there, and you may not get what you need out of the space that you're growing in. It's better, de- it's better to stick with tubers and cuttings. I feel like that's the case.
2: Oh uh, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't recommend doing seeds. They're cheap to begin <laughs> with, but you don't never know what you're going to get, and I mean, you could get a low quality plant next to a high quality plant, and If you have a market that's requiring a specific shape or size or color, you're not gonna get that with seeds. And they take up a lot of space. Um, Like for instance, I plant around 500 seedlings a year. And the first year I might keep like 25 of those. So that's like around 5%. And the rest of the plot is pretty much wasted because I just destroy all those plants. Um, And if I'm really honest with myself, I should probably have only kept eight or nine of those. And that's down to a 1% return rate. Great, right,
1: right. Yeah. And those ones that you decide not to keep, were they viable at all for cutting, for taking to, you know, market in any way, or are they just frankly just trash? Like they're just not good.
2: I harvest them. I, I give them away. A lot of them are open centered. So okay. you have to be able to cut them and harvest them. Some of them, though, that they just don't have a quality, like the bloom might be downward facing or they might have the bobble head. I mean, it comes through. Uh, dahlias have over 64 chromosomes that can cross any which way or that. And um, you never know what you're really going to get, which is the surprise and the fun factor, <laughs> but not really reliable. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so in your seed dahlias, have you have you gotten a few that you feel like are, are real winners?
2: I have. In fact, uh, in 2022, I'll probably have six to eight new introductions to release. Ooh. And here in 2021, I'm going to do a mini launch of two varieties so people can start to get their hands on it.
1: Oh, wow. So wait, tell me about these two that are coming. What? Why did you pick them out of the hundreds of seed seedlings and, and what makes you excited about them?
2: Uh, these are going to be... Um, uh, they're in forms that I really enjoy for cut flowers. So they're clothes centered. They have very sturdy petals. And you notice that I don't really talk about color much. Um, mm-hmm. It seems like color trends can come and go. And as long as the plant fits all my other requirements, I'm gonna let the customer decide what they prefer for color. Um, but, the, but the two that are coming out um, this year, uh, one of them is actually a really nice muted pink. Um, that can turn to amber in the fall when the cooler weather hits. Uh, but these two specifically are really good tuber makers. And so I have a lot of stock. <laughs> you got a
1: lot of them. <laughs> That's great. Hey, there's always a reason to start somewhere. And there's no shame in that for sure. So did you, so did you get to name them? Do you name them? when you? Do
2: yeah. That? Ev- every new seed is potentially a new variety. And so they have the cozy tail name and I will be releasing them soon. I have to do all the final stuff. And one doesn't necessarily have a name yet. So I got to pick one. (laughs) They're all labeled and they all have a number system for me to ID them. But then there's the marketing name that needs to come out. Some get some right away. Others need a little bit of time. Um, But here in the next two weeks, this should be available on my website.
1: Oh, cool. I'm excited to see those. I can't wait to uh, peek and I'm probably going to have to buy a couple because, you know, it's cool. PA grown and, and raised, bred and raised uh, dahlia sounds awesome. And I do think plants adapt uh, to their micro local climate, so to speak. So buying for me here as a Pennsylvania grower and you being a Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania breeder, um, I suspect that your dahlies will carry some genetic traits that are more adaptable to Our crazy hot humid summers and cold winters versus someplace out on the west coast that has some do you think that's the same
2: I wholeheartedly agree and that's why I'm a big proponent uh, for others to get involved with raising from seed because each of our own environments is going to naturally select the seeds that are going to do well
1: yeah yeah and I feel like that's part of the other thing when I was um not very, uh, not, I, I don't know that my selection of dahlia varieties was as nearly um, scientific and straightforward as yours. I, I kind of went with my gut a lot of times, but um, in terms of just calling tubers, you know, back in the day, I had like 70 varieties. Now I'm down to 10 varieties. Um, I just grow them in mass quantity now, but the ones that I chose had a lot to do with, could they, could they handle hot humid summers like we hear, have here in the mid-Atlantic region? Um, and some of them wouldn't really have usable flowers until late September or October. And they might have been perfectly viable, beautiful cut flowers. And growers in you know, Colorado, maybe would find them very useful. But here in Pennsylvania, it just didn't work. So I, I would strongly encourage listeners to also just consider that as well when they're growing. I
2: also hope, as more people get involved with cultivating new varieties of dahlias, that they share the details about it. Um, I mean, early blooming is a very important trait that farmers or growers might need to know. And so while I might have some that are early blooming and others are not, I'm gonna do the diligent thing by sharing that information on what works here. Now others will need to have a little grace and understand experiences and environments can change some of that. Um, But there's zero information about that now and a little bit would be helpful.
1: Yeah, I I can't say enough about knowing whether it's an early bloomer or a late bloomer being super important. Because one of my very favorite dahlias, hands down, I think my favorite dahlia, (laughs) is called Jasmine Pearl. And she is the dreamiest, sweetest, silvery lavender. um, I think she's just an informal decorative. Maybe she's actually a formal decorative. um, A wonderful and highly productive dahlia. Except she doesn't bloom until the second week of October. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's really not useful here um, because we get frost in mid to late October. So I get one week out of her. If she would just bloom earlier in the season, I would just just do hundreds of weddings with that color. It's a magical color, but it's useless, frankly. So that one got called this past year. um, And I kept like five for myself, but that's not one I would ever recommend for... um, for growers who have short colder seasons
2: all right so i'm taking notes we need a jasmine pearl or early bloomer i'll tell my yes, seats the
1: equivalent <laughs> find it <laughs> it is it's just such a great color it's really really lovely but yeah it just doesn't come on in time so something to think about when choosing a variety um, so, okay, let's see. Where we are we at here? Oh, seed saving. Um, any other tips for people that maybe want to try this for themselves? Say it's a grower who's got, I mean, I know there's a lot of um, people getting into farming with similar backgrounds to you and I, where we come from agricultural families with hundreds of acres of land. Um, but the the original farming model the family had isn't working anymore. So they're seeking specialty crops. So maybe maybe dahlias from seed production could be, is that a crazy idea? something people could
2: do it's not crazy but it is a long-range plan there's a bit of patience involved for propagation and you got to make sure that you're going to be able to do all the parts well growing from seed is just one hurdle and then it's growing it to completion having it make tubers storing the tubers and increasing the stocks. so and you have to do that multiple seasons before you have enough to sell
1: yeah yeah but if
2: you're But I mean, I wouldn't dissuade it. I mean, it's pretty much the thing I look forward to every year, going out there and seeing the brand new bloom every season. It's Christmas morning every morning.
1: I need to come out to your farm just to do that one morning and just like see what magic is there. That would be amazing. Yeah.
2: But if someone but if someone wanted to do this, I would just say, think about your favorites, your favorite dahlias, and then think about why they're your favorites. Is it just the bloom? Is it just the color or their other attributes? And then from there, be a little bit more critical about the plants you bring in and making sure they meet the attributes that are important to you. And then just start planting them next to each other I don't do very many hand pollinations because it takes time. Um, and I just don't find that to be something I have a lot of these days with young kids. So I do open pollination and it's worked out really well, but it's very intentional. Yeah. Like I'm only planting plants next to each other that I want the bees to touch. And so, uh, you know, that's one thing. And if you're going to start, just have a plan and also know that plan can be flexible and you can change it. But, if you have a goal, eventually, you're going to end up getting there.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and keeping good records, too, I think is important as well, so that you act, or not records, but organization, it's such a key component of that, I would think. Well,
2: oh, no, records are very important. I mean, <laughs> I can't trust my brain to remember what I ate for, you know, last week, let alone what flower bloomed in 2018, and what its qualities were. And so, Yeah, you'll you'll save yourself a lot of mistakes if you take good notes so you don't make those same mistakes again.
1: Yeah, yeah. And one question I get a lot that I'm realizing maybe you would, be able to help answer from growers that come and see my dahlias here at my farm a lot of times the initial question anybody asks is like well how many how many stems do you get per plant like how, what 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 can you expect to harvest from one dahlia plant and that has so much to do with the variety and usually i can't really answer that question but if you're selecting for cut varieties do you have a a criteria for the number of stems you think a plant should produce to be a good productive cut
2: more than one. Uh, there's some I, I brought in this week. I got two flowers off of them the entire season and they're well renowned, um, show flowers. Um, you know what I mean? So no, when I look at a plant and I say it's good for cut flower production, I'm looking for eight to nine stems, if not more per week. And that's okay. Per week. Okay. Per week. Um, there were very few that hit that mark. Um, you know, so there there has to be some measure of give when I look at these. Do, do they make good tubers? Do they have good um, stems? Um, is the bloom desirable? You know, how many stems? You know, if it's doing five or six, that's okay. You know what yeah. I mean? Um, there are very few what I call tens out there where they meet all 10 of my requirements in the best possible way.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I feel like blizzard does for me, though. I mean, I feel like I get I get like 12 stems per week off of blizzard. <laughs>
2: No, if I could just take Blizzard and make it every color. All colours, yeah. Done. Please, please done. that's
1: that's my seed seed fairy request, please.
2: <laughs> Unfortunately, Blizzard doesn't make a lot of seeds for me, so I might have oh. to <laughs> oh. But it's in my seed parent bed every year because I still okay, have hopes. Just in
1: case. Just in case. Good. Go, Blizzard Glow, go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I know one of the biggest questions listeners are going to have, and I always get, um, is about Dahlia storage. So I know that you dig yours. I no longer dig mine, and we can talk about that then. But let me hear from you what your tips are for Dahlia storage once you finally get those suckers dug up.
2: I will tell you a story. I killed my Dahlia tubers the first three years Oh no! I tried to do. I did. And I mean once maybe twice oh my goodness but three i usually don't make three mistakes in a row and what i failed to realize is i didn't look at them for what they actually were and they are a fresh root crop that i was trying to do long-term storage with yeah and the art of long-term food storage has really gone out of our communities yeah and so when I really started researching that, that's when things changed for me because I treated them differently. So it's really about the maturity of the tuber or the root product that you're about to store, and that's important, and the temperature and humidity that you store them at in combination with air circulation. Hmm. So, okay. The, the baseline, what I would say is if you could store potatoes anywhere for long term, that would be a good place to start. So if you kind of think of them as a potato, it might change your um, the way that you view them a little yeah. bit, yeah. But they really want to be at a very high humidity, so the perfect conditions would be 80 to 90% humidity, anywhere between 42 and 45 degrees, which just so happens to be the exact same temperature and humidity as root cellars.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, that's what I was going to say. That sounds exactly like my root cellar. <laughs> yeah. Yes,
2: yeah. it is. So if you live in an old home that has a dirt cellar floor, I mean, you're golden.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, as
2: long as the temp stays really low, you want to make sure that the dahlia tubers stay um, under fifty degrees. Around fifty five degrees is when a dahlia will break dormancy and start to grow.
1: Yeah, yeah, and also dry out too. I feel like anytime you get too warm, then they start to dry a little bit.
2: Yeah, because. Well. Yeah, I mean, and that's where the humidity comes into play. So most home basements, like my finished basement downstairs, um, stays above 60 degrees, and the humidity is like 30 to 40%. uh, And that'll dry them out. And that's how I killed them. Um, So it then it's about finding materials to try to get to the best that you can, um, whether you're storing in plastic, because you want to keep the humidity in um you're stirring storing in um sawdust versus perlite um again it's about moisture holding so i store in a root cellar Uh, my neighbor has one and i have access to it which is fantastic for what i do uh so i have to store in open crates because i need uh, air circulation so like the bulb crates and i line them with paper and I use saw or pine shavings because I actually have a lot of moisture, and I don't need that moisture sitting on my on my tubers. Um, I wouldn't recommend uh, pine shavings for like a household basement; that would be too dry. Too dry. Yeah. And then other things like don't touch, don't stack against the wall. That's an air circulation issue. Uh, and then keeping them, you know, around forty-two degrees, and they'll sit there all winter, just happy as can be.
1: Do you check on them every once in a while still?
2: Yes, I still do because you never know if condensation know. <laughs> drips down there. Uh, and you don't know if tubers actually have rot on the inside. Uh, that can just come up and it is what it is. But our loss, my loss rates are, are, are very minimal these days. And um, yeah, but I still check on them. And if there's a problem, you just have to adjust.
1: Yeah. And when I was storing them, I was storing them in my cooler, which I found the walk-in cooler, you know, what we'd normally use for cut flowers through the season. I found I had a lot of success storing in the cooler because I could set the temperature and I could set the humidity the same way we would during the season. Um, And that that was a great system. So if people out there don't happen to have a root cellar, (laughs) but you do have a walk-in cooler, (laughs) it's very likely you can get just the right... Um, conditions in there
2: as well. I'm having success with that as well. I did buy an indoor cooler for my basement to keep my processing all together and to keep the quality of my product while I was dividing in pristine condition. And they're doing great. Um, Even with an open bucket of water in my basement, the humidity is staying around 88%. Oh, wow. Um, Nice. Yeah, I know. So it's it's doing really well. For those that might just have a few tubers, let's say you're in the 30 to 50 range, and you don't have a good spot within your home or your neighbor's home, um, consider doing like one of those bucket root cellars. Have you seen those, Jenny? No. Dig a hole and you just make a five gallon bucket and you put it down in the hole and then you insulate the top. So you're making a a mini root cellar.
1: Yeah, it's like cacheting kind of, you know, just dig a big pit. And then, I mean, you have to do more than dig a pit, but (laughs) it's like that. Wow. I have not seen that. It's definitely worth a Google search for sure.
2: Yeah, it's, it's just something little. Everyone has a yard, hopefully. And if it works and it's near maybe a, a foundation of a shed or something just to kind of keep it frost free, it might be worth for someone to look into.
1: Yeah, definitely. And, and just uh, it, that goes to the point that I store my tubers in the ground now, essentially. You know, I don't dig them at all anymore. And, um, and they store beautifully in the ground if you take some some precautions for that. <laughs> uh so yeah I haven't dug my dahlias since um oh my gosh now but I guess the last time I dug um dug and divided in the traditional sense was 2015 so oh that was about the same time you're getting started that was that was the last big dig that I had um and that's when I kind of got rid of all the varieties that I didn't like and decided to just keep 10 that I did like and replant them and since then we haven't um dug them all up since then so you can overwinter them in the ground if you're in a zone as warm we're in zone seven here um six b sometimes uh and it works beautifully Uh, if you're a bit colder than that it might not work but dahlia's Like to be, as you said, as long as you can keep it above 40 degrees in the ground, generally speaking, they're going to survive that um, and keep them at a decent humidity, but not too wet. So the key is to keep the moisture off of them and not let the ground freeze.
2: So do you insulate them in some way?
1: Yes. So. First, the, fr- what we do is we wait until the plants get a hard killing frost and they turn black and then we cut them down at the ground. Um, and we've been leaving the debris just right in place on top of the beds. Um, though I know you told me earlier that might cause slugs. And <laughs> now I'm like re- rethinking my, um, my question there, but, or my, uh, my logic there. Um, but w- typically I've been leaving the debris on the ground because it returns nutrients to the soil. Um, and also, it's it's a lot of work to you know lug all that plant debris off of thousands of dahlias, as as you well know, Leanne. That's I'm
2: sure. that's not to be underestimated.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a lot. <laughs> And it creates a huge compost pile. So um, it's great if you want to actually take the time to process them properly as compost. But if you're a home gardener and you happen to be in a more suburban location and not lots of space, creating this massive heap of um, really gross, slimy <laughs> stems in November might not be the best thing. So um, so leaving them on the beds has worked well for us in terms of it's not caused any disease, but it maybe it's causing pressure that I wasn't really calculating previously. But back to the moral of the story is <laughs> that we, we cut them down. Um, and then on top of that, uh, well, first we amend um, with minerals or whatever we need to do to adjust pH. We do that in the fall. And then um, over top of that, we spread leaves and straw, or this year it was just leaves, because I got a really great source for um, mulch leaves. And it's about 8 to 12 inches of this insulating layer of organic matter. Um, Whatever you can get your hands on works. You could also use pine straw, um, regular good old-fashioned straw, or leaves. Anything, I would suggest anything you can get for free, because if you have a lot of dahlias, you're going to need a lot of mulch. And then once it's insulated with that nice thick layer over top, we pull big tarps over top of all of that, big impermeable tarps. They could be silage tarps. Here we use recycled uh, billboards, so old billboards. There's a a guy I happen to make the acquaintance of who works for a billboard company, and, and he noticed that I had some tarps on my field at the time. They were just construction tarps like you get at Lowe's. And he said, Could you maybe use, you know, like big, big tarps? And I was like, "Uh, Yes. That was serendipitous. (laughs) Yes, it was fantastic. So now I have this massive collection of tarps that are are quite big, and it's great because they they really stay in place um, and they're very well. How
2: how do you keep your tarps in place? Because I live in a very windy area. Yeah,
1: so do I. Um, My farm is up on the top of a plateau, so the winter winds are really wicked, and it does take a lot of work. So, for the record, this whole um, not digging your dahlias is not necessarily less work. (laughs) Noted digging. So I don't want anybody to be fooled into thinking this is magically easy. It is really excruciatingly backbreaking work in um, the late season. What I like about it is that it means in the spring we have no work, essentially, in terms of dahlias then. So while it's not less work in the fall, it does mean there's no replanting work in the spring, which does cut your dahlia labor in half um, but in the fall it is that does involve moving a lot of heavy stuff around so the the mulching materials are heavy the tarps themselves are heavy and then to hold the tarps down you have to use a lot of soil or sandbags or um you know con cinder blocks concrete blocks big stones <laughs> whatever you can find usually I, I have about i think we did accounts um this season, I think it was about 600 soil bags um, <laughs> go on the one patch. <laughs> I think I might have broken my crews back that day. Um, and uh, and then we have a second patch. that I don't, we, we didn't count that patch. But so it's a lot. It's a lot of heavy weight. That's how you have to keep the tarps down. And it's super important to keep the tarps down. I think that's the thing that I, it took me a couple seasons to learn exactly how to pin those down, that they would stay put. Because if they come off for Just one night or something, it's not that big of a deal, but what you want to avoid is a rain storm or maybe a big snowstorm that comes down onto bare exposed beds and then all that moisture seeps in. Um, and that that's when rot could happen at that point. So you're trying, the tarps are really to keep the rain out. It's not even about exposing the ground to um, the cold. Um, that's what the insulating layers for, but the tarps are very, very necessary to make sure you don't get really soggy beds over the winter, because that's when you'd lose all the dahlias. So, But yeah, that's the process. So mulch deeply, put tarps on, weigh the tarps down really, really well <laughs> and walk away. And then in the spring, um, in usually the beginning of April or mid-April, we take the tarps off. The soil biology over the winter has worked heavily on that mulching um, that we did. So what was eight or 12 inches deep is now just about one inch deep. So they've done a tremendous job of incorporating that. So there's really, in the spring, there's basically no work. It's kind of, that's the magic. <laughs> um, and and the plants come up and they're they're very healthy and they bloom much earlier then. So that's, that's the other reason to put the effort into overwintering them in the ground is that they're much more productive. They usually bloom in late June for us heavily. Like the, you know, I know, I know in the past I would get maybe a half bucket of dahlias in June, um, but wouldn't really count on them for real production until late August. But now I can count on them as a late June flower and, and they kind of fill in that hole in late June when there's not much else in the focal focal family world so um, that's
2: fantastic for our zone because like we don't count on any dahlias from a tuber plant in tuber planted in the spring until mm-hmm. like august mid-august
1: yeah yeah it, w- it was such a game changer i mean i have to i, I you know full confession. I only left them in the ground because I was so angry at them that first year. <laughs> I, was like, I hate dahlias. I'm not growing dahlias anymore. Screw you, dahlias. You're such a pain in my butt. Um, and I was, Oh, those passions
2: can go either way. I know.
1: Oh, they really can. I was so fed up. And I knew that like, you know, as a farmer florist who was doing weddings, I knew that I needed to keep them, but like emotionally, I was just over it. And I think that we are like, you know, when you dig dahlias, it's always inevitably... Like going to pour cold freezing rain, like as you're digging them.
2: It's just guaranteed. <laughs> it's
1: just guaranteed. And so it's just like, ah, I can't do it. I can't do it. We're just going to throw that. That year I used straw because um, that was what I had a handy a bunch of bales of straw. And I was like, we're just going to throw this straw in there. We're going to throw this tarp on there and good luck. <laughs> All right, and so it <laughs> I have a
2: question about production because you yeah. have left these in the ground for five years. You didn't dig them up, redivide them or anything. No. Nope. You find that the plants are too crowded because you have this ginormous tuber clump with all these eyes producing?
1: Yeah, that is such a good question because I've been... Trying to keep track of this myself, and um, that's one reason I sheepishly asked you how many stems per plant you thought was a good um, criteria for cut production. I've been so the ones that have been in the ground the longest are blizzard, um, and I've been keeping a very close eye on blizzards because it's you know, a it's such a valuable dahlia for me as a wedding florist, a white dahlia. Um, is just so useful and so it's one of the ones i've always really maintained more meticulously than others and so i i was really watching it this was its fifth season um in the ground and i actually dug one of the clumps up this fall to see it was they were absolutely as productive as they've ever been maybe even more so this year and then they've ever been, and we had a really crappy dahlia year this year, I might add. <laughs> we had a Mother's Day freeze here in um, Philadelphia, which killed the plants. And then we also got um, really just kind of bad weather in general season. So, um, so yeah, this, it was a huge, the one that I dug just out of curiosity, I dug it just to see the clump and it was massive. And I have pictures on, on my blog um, that we'll link to massive. But yeah, it doesn't seem to be crowded out. They don't seem crowded out at all. And in fact, it was surprisingly easy to pop them out of the ground. I thought it would be, I needed a backhoe, (laughs) a forklift, you know, I was like all prepared for like, oh God, this is never going to work. And it, it just popped, the whole clump popped right up out of the ground, super healthy. It is very dense very very dense clump like hundreds of tubers i think um in the clump uh maybe not hundreds i'd say between 75 and 150 tubers in the clump um they're small though the tubers that are there are small smaller than i would that i think that i remember blizzard singular tubers being Um, but they're they're super productive. So what do I care? You know what I mean? Like <laughs> I, I am in it for the cut flower off of them not the, not I'm not trying to produce um, tubers to dig and divide same, the same as you are. So so that one is working really well. Blizzard definitely, I think thrives on being perennialized. So I consider my dahlias perennialized. that's the way I like to refer to them. Um, Cornell bronze seems to love being perennialized. That's another one. Uh, one that I can't decide is iced tea, which is a good one for me, generally speaking, but this was the first year that one's been in the, fi- in the ground five years too. Um, and this year it did seem to slow down. So that's what I'm gonna watch next year. And if it seems like it's the same thing next year, then I'll probably dig and, you know, just chop those in half probably and put them back in the ground. Um, so we'll see, but so far, so good.
2: That is so fascinating. My brain is spinning now because I'm like, do I have to consider perennialized like dahlia traits in my breeding?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I do think that there's a really so when I, you know, as I said, I I started leaving them in the ground before I was even no till um, because I was fed up. This is usually how I discover new things at my farm as I get fed up. (laughs) I try something new and that's why I, I ended up starting no-till was i got fed up with the rain and i couldn't get into my fields and thus became no-till here at the farm but um but i now that i've perennialized the dahlias i started doing more research into you know i always knew that dahlias came from the mountains of mexico i knew that they were perennials there but it wasn't until i really saw them as a perennial in my own fields that I realized this is what these plants want. Like this is how they want to live. They don't have nearly the same pest pressures as they used to have. They're so much more productive. Um, when they come up out of the ground in the spring, there's, you know, uh, 20, 30 shoots per clump coming up out of the ground. So all of those are going to become um, viable uh, flowers eventually. So I, it, it just makes good sense. So yes, if you could, <laughs> if you could create a breeding program that helps more people be able to perennialize, you know, basically cold hardier dahlias, mm-hmm. um, that would, I think that would be phenomenal because they're much better cut flower as a perennial.
2: Uh, it's so good. And the fact that you said you were calculating the workload because dahlias are work. I mean, I touched these tubers. uh, six, eight times before they ever leave here. Um, And so you are giving yourself a better spring for a little more effort in the fall.
1: Yeah, exactly. And and we still have like a tiny bit of loss when we overwinter them, but no more than we would if we dug and and stored them the way we talked about. So um, I think it just, if it can work for you, I highly recommend not, you know, if it can work for listeners, I highly recommend they give it a try. And if you know, most people are too anxious to um, see their babies, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, you know, go to risk. I say, just let five of them in the ground. You know, try five in the ground and see what happens. And then I think as as people experience it more and more, they'll um, they're gonna realize this this is really a much better way to grow dahlias if you can. I realize I'm sorry to everybody out there listening in like zone five or two or whatever. <laughs> like I'm so sorry. <laughs> There's no hope for you. <laughs>
2: There is a limit.
1: <laughs> there is a limit even for dahlias. <laughs> so Oh man, but this does lead me to a question and I'm sort of piggybacking on your question to me is do you think that size matters for a tuber, you know, like we we're talking about my clumps, these older clumps having lots and lots of tubers but they're small tubers. You know, I think a lot of growers always wonder that. Is a is the tuber size really important to how productive a uh a dahlia plant will be? I don't
2: know. We haven't. My sister and I, we have our collective fields as experience here. Um, But no, like the bigger the tuber doesn't mean you're going to have a better plant. I would say in in the sense that a bigger tuber is actually a little bit um, of a concern. I don't actually ship out really huge tubers because if I plant them myself, I've experienced multiple times where they'll start to grow a plant and then I don't know, eight weeks into the season, I'll go out and I'll see this rapid decline in the plant and I'll pull it up. And what I see is a massive tuber with a very healthy looking stalk coming out of it, but no feeder roots. And Mm. we have come up with a term, we call these lazy tubers. We think that the plant is relying too much on all the stored nutrients in that tuber and it's not producing its own feeder roots to support its own self. So when it's depleted, that tuber, then it just kind of nothing
1: for it. There's yeah, nothing
2: for it there. And conversely, we plant these really small tubers, like even the size of our thumb, and we're getting gorgeous plants and right away, and they're robust. Um, but those plants can't rely on stored nutrients, and so they're immediately making their own feeder roots.
1: Hmm. That's a really interesting way of thinking about that question because I think this also opens up the the um, storyline to you know those symbiotic relationships that roots whether dahlia roots or any kind of roots have with microorganisms in the soil and how once they you know the roots need to be there and be exuding you know the sugars for the soil life to to you know sort of pony up to the bar and help, you know, everybody starts that symbiotic relationship and thrives as a result. If you've got a lazy tuber that's not putting out any exudates, who's not creating roots, then you don't get the symbiotic relationship with the microorganisms and therefore ultimately do have a weaker plant, regardless of whether that tuber can suffice or not. The plant does not have its uh, its entourage, basically.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's been our field experience, and I think there's something to it. I haven't seen a lot of information out on the internet about this, um, but there's also the customer perception that they need a big tuber, and I'm going to challenge that a little bit.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I like it. I think you should. I think that needs to be challenged. And is there, in that case then too, maybe there's really a lot of um, value in just doing a lot of cuttings from a tuber and, and not even worrying so much about one tuber because then the cuttings are going to be forced to create roots do you feel
2: that way yeah and and i've done limited cuttings um i don't have a greenhouse so everything that i do is done in my dining room Uh, so my space is limited but i've found that my cuttings since they're immediately planted out with a root system um will mature faster and i'll get blooms faster from them than their tuber grown counterparts
1: That is awesome to know. I don't know that I've ever really paid attention to cuttings versus tubers in my own production cycle, but I I think I could see that happening. Yeah, that makes sense. Hmm. All right, so let's talk about pinching really quick, because most of the listeners will know lots about pinching, but I also wanna make sure this is an inclusive conversation like a crash course. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) on dahlia production for any farmers who are new to dahlias, particularly maybe vegetable farmers. Um, So pinching is such a critical component of cut flower production. And in a nutshell, for anybody who doesn't know what pinching is, it means you remove a portion of a lateral stem coming up to force the plant to branch multiple times instead of just having one long, tall stalk. Um, It's very common in in so many flowers that we produce. And it just creates a more um, uniform uh, crop. And it gives you a lot more stems per plant, generally speaking. But let's talk about dahlias in particular, because they're one you must, you must pinch, um, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, But it's tricky. And sometimes you lose plants because you pinch. So what's been your experience, Leanne?
2: Yes, um, pinching is necessary, so if you're going for cut flowers, you have to do this. That's just bottom line. There is this sweet spot, though, that you can take out that lateral bud or terminal bud, and that's when the stem is still solid and hasn't started to hollow out yet. Um, As Jenny just said, that if you don't pinch, you'll end up with this tree, and that's not good for any production. It's hard to support, it'll fall down, um, and it won't give you as many flowers. So usually um, between um, everyone will say between six inches or a foot, I like to leave five or six leaf sets on the bottom. I find that's as much as I can stretch it out because anything below the bud that you pinch out is gonna start to branch. All those branches are gonna be flowers for you to harvest in a few weeks. Um, So you wanna either pull or pinch it out and ideally you want that to be a solid stem. But realistically, if you have hundreds of plants, you're not going to all get them at the same time because they're all going to come up at a different rate. Um, And this is where the loss happens because you pinch it out and now you've exposed a hollow stem for the elements. So there are some common sense things you can do, like if you know you're going to be in the field walking around pinching. Don't do it before a rainstorm.
1: <laughs> yeah. You, <know?
2: laughs>
1: <laughs> you just create a giant funnel for all that water to go right down to the root and then cause rot down there. So that's why you shouldn't pinch a hollow stem in the rain.
2: <laughs> there is, a, you know, this that is interesting. So if you plant your tuber <clears throat> a little deeper in the soil, I plant mine six inches. That stem that's under the ground is still solid. Oh, so it, it is. isn't, yeah. It's not hollow all the way down to the tuber. What will happen though is that inch or two right around the soil line—that's where it starts to open up. And if the water sits there for a long time, you will degrade that material, and then the nutrients can't get up into the top of the leaf canopy, and then you'll see that decline with it rotting.
1: Yeah, um, die off. Yeah. So have you, so one thing that I do sometimes is when I'm pinching, I will take, you know, inevitably when you pinch, you have um, a set of pinched off, you know, leaves. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I try to make a little umbrella for my, (laughs) for the hollow stem that's left and just lay one of those pinched off leaves over top of it to, in case, you know, moisture does get in there. I'm not really sure if that works
2: no it does it does work <laughs>
1: yeah okay i was like i think it's just me but i was also tried slicing just a small like a pinhole essentially at the base of the hollow stem if i think rain's coming and you know by golly this is the only time i have to pinch and i just have to do it um i'll try to basically create a drainage hole at the base of the stem have you ever tried that
2: I have never tried it, but it sounds like it could work because the dahlias will still heal. So if you pinched out and it was slightly hollow, if you go back in a couple weeks, you'll start it, you'll see that it's healed and it'll start to close up.
1: Yeah, it'll callous. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, but you have had, or at least I should say I have had, where I think that I've pinched, it rained, or for whatever reason, it looks like the pinch wasn't. Um, wasn't good. Something happened. What I don't know what happened. But instead of just assuming that that plant is lost, um, I like to dig the tuber and make sure. And sometimes it'll be a healthy tuber under. Have you seen that happen as well?
2: Yeah, that happens a lot. I usually have a handful of plants and I always dig up if there's some sort of issue. I want to see what's going on. That's how I've discovered the lazy tubers. Um, and if I, if I run into that, Jenny, I'll just cut off the rotten part and replant and that plant will regrow. I won't say that you'll get a lot of flowers off of it. Um, but you'll get your tubers if you're digging your tubers for propagation.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. So in, 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 um, in short, they're basically don't give up. If it looks like, if it looks like a plant is failing, that doesn't necessarily mean that it is. It's good to look at the tuber itself and make Abs- sure.
2: I mean, you've invested so much money into these. Why wouldn't you take an extra step and, you know, in five seconds yeah. to figure out what's the matter?
1: Yeah, exactly. Always have a curious mind for sure. Um, but before we, so I'm, I'm, as we predicted, you and I are going to be super nerdy and just talk about this forever, but <laughs> I did want to to make sure that we got into one topic that's near and dear to my heart. And I think it is as well to yours, which is how, um, The Dahlia industry has really exploded in the past, you know, five plus years, or maybe it's just more like in the past three or four years, (laughs) because there's so many newer growers or growers that were newer earlier, but now they've expanded. And there's just a lot of abundance of Dahlia tubers in the marketplace. And a lot of people are selling Dahlia tubers now. And I personally, as somebody who's been in the industry for 12, (laughs) I'll be 13 years this year, um, I'm concerned about the quality of the tubers, about safeguarding you know, the varieties, making sure we've got proper identification. I worry about disease control. Is this something you, as one of the people that are now in the business of selling tubers, what do you, I just want to hear your thoughts. Let's talk about the industry.
2: Yeah, this is a topic that's near and dear to my heart because when I started, I was looking for those industry leaders to kind of guide me into what the standard was. And unfortunately there was nothing. And so then I'm left with creating my own standard. And I did so um, by collectively ordering from different places and seeing what was brought in and what I liked. And ultimately it came down to what quality would I want to receive myself. And so I, I truly believe that anyone that begins to sell is under an obligation to provide healthy tuber stock and really should strive both in knowledge and practice to keep our U.S. supply really healthy. So keeping proper identification I mean, this is probably the most time-consuming thing that I do, um, but it's the most worthwhile because, uh, I mean, your tuber has no value if it's um, not identified correctly, and there's so many parts to the process of growing that you can lose the identity, so I've really strived to make sure that this is a process that I've kept under my own control, so I don't um, allow others to tag my plants because I'm so intimately involved with them. I know them even by the leaf shape at this point. Um, So that's with me and just making sure that that label stays with them through the entire process is important. It is time consuming. It is huge to manage, but I think it has incredible value. The next thing is about disease control. I mean, this is where you have to grow in knowledge about what diseases are out there. There's bacterial diseases, there's virus diseases, and some you can see and some you can't. And so you just have to develop a system that you're comfortable and confident with when you're out there selling them. And I think regardless of what you're doing, you should tell people where you're at, because we're all going to grow and we're all going to eventually develop into better growers and better business people. Um, so as, I think as long as you're striving to better um, your process, that's just a good place to be in.
1: Yeah. And also just taking it seriously. That's the one thing that I do worry about a little bit is that there are so many growers who got into the growing dahlias for the flowers, for the cut flowers, you know, and then You know, after as as you and I can both testify, you buy five tubers one year, and then if they all do well, you're going to have 35 tubers the next year, and then if those do well, you're going to have—I don't know—I'm really bad at math, but seven times 35. (laughs) So give yourself like three or four seasons, and suddenly you've got hundreds of dahlia tubers, and they're
2: hard to throw away. They're hard to throw
1: away, exactly. And so, and I think people become so emotionally attached to them, but yet they're growing in a small space, and so they just think rationally obviously I mean it's a it's a rational next step so to speak to be like well I'll start selling the tubers but they don't educate themselves on tubers which is different than flowers and and just all that goes into tubers and I worry personally about the um, not that I would get a improperly identified tuber and be frustrated that like, oh, I thought I was buying peaches and cream, but now I've got, um, you know, Cornell came, you know, (laughs) that, that isn't what I'm so worried about personally for the industry, but I see where Varieties that are similar, you know, say um, like Sierra Glow, and that's one that always comes to mind because everybody's always like, no, that's that's Hermione that.
2: Gold or something.
1: Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so I think that there's this potential for breeders who worked hard to create a variety to have their variety get kind of shuffled away and muddled. And and I, w- I would like to be more respectful of the time and energy that breeders put into creating a variety. Um, and then, like you said, disease control. I know for my farm, we we ended up with Crown gall um, here at 11 Fresh Flowers, which is was devastating for um, a couple seasons. And that was from tubers that I bought from a, a a small grower who was just dividing their tubers. and and in hindsight, i I wish I had I had known. <laughs> so yeah, just just learning the ropes of tuber tuber world and not just flower world, basically.
2: There's a, another layer of um, knowledge of actually selling a root and every state is different. So if you're shipping an agricultural product in state or even out of state and definitely exporting to a different country, there are legal rules um, and inspections that take place to help mitigate the risk of spreading these types of diseases around. And so, Um, It's just, it's really worth your effort to contact your Department of Agriculture to see what is required. And I mean, you're just going to gain if you're selling tubers, you're going to gain the respect and confidence of your customers by doing this.
1: Yeah, definitely. I agree. It, it pays to educate yourself if you want to start selling tubers, which clearly, Leanne, you have. <laughs> I love that you've become such a font of knowledge on dahlias, and I'm so grateful that you were willing to share all of that with us today. And I, I still have like 500 questions <laughs> to ask you. <laughs> But I I think we might need to wrap it up for this time around. But before we go, I want to make sure that listeners know that you sell Dahlia tubers, very well thought out, um, high quality tubers through Cozy Town Flowers, and that you also have a couple online courses that you've developed and are launching and will continue to launch about um, scientific and thoughtful Dahlia growing. Is that right?
2: That is right. Thanks for mentioning that. It is my desire to help build up the community around dahlias. And uh, as you can tell, like I've just spent a lot of time just researching and getting to the heart of why things work and what's gonna be um, beneficial to the plant and for the industry. And so I'm excited to package it in materials so people don't have to rely on um, social media sites and just, um, you know,
1: a lot of
2: sure, guesswork. <laughs> no, it's just a lot of guesswork, and you feel like you know. I don't know. Maybe this will work, and this won't. But now you'll be grounded in a little bit of scientific evidence.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm excited about those. I'm definitely gonna. Um, I'm definitely gonna be one of your students. So I think that because <laughs> one of the things that as a grower, I, I have. I mean, um, I have more years of experience than you do growing in general. But but the difference here is that you have honed in, and you are very focused on dahlias, and that is immensely valuable. That's this kind of thing that somebody who grows as many different varieties as I do, I, as much as I know about dahlias, I can't spend the time that you've spent on really getting to know this crop, um, and that's why I think you've, you've really um, dialed in in a way that I can't wait to kind of, you know, pick your brain constantly <laughs> about it maybe future podcasts.
2: <laughs> yes, there's always something new to learn and that's what I love about this.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, thank you, Leanne. You were amazing. I, I love talking to you and I'm sure the listeners are going to get so much out of this and I can't wait to see the other dahlias that you release. So will definitely be keeping an eye on Cozy Town Flowers and and we'll just watch you grow.
2: <laughs> thank you so much, Jenny. Mm-hmm.
0: Today's episode of No-Till Flowers was produced by Jenny Love of Love and Fresh Flowers with support from No-Till Growers. Special thank you to Nikolai Fox for the theme music, at Nikolai Fox on Instagram. Thank you to the Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash no-till growers for making this show possible. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you are getting it and leave a review. That always helps us out. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode of No-Till Flowers.